Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagdorn. Today, the mysterious legend of Gil Perez and other stories. The story of Gil Perez, the transported soldier, is one that has baffled historians and critics for nearly four centuries. You fans of Star Trek are all familiar with the term, Beam Me Up, Scotty, which comes from the command which Captain Kirk gave to his chief engineer, Montgomery Scotty Scott, when he needed to be transported back to the Starship Enterprise. That catchphrase, Beam Me Up, Scotty, has been one of the most popular phrases in today's culture, and it's not likely to go away soon. This old folk legend holds that in October of 1593, a soldier of the Spanish Empire named Gil Perez was mysteriously transported from his guard station at the Governor's Palace in Manila, which is now the capital of the Philippines, to the Plaza Mayor, now called the Zocalo, in Mexico City, a distance of 8,851 miles. Both Mexico City and Manila had been established as outposts by Spain just years before. There was no lapse in time involved. He just disappeared from the palace in Manila and reappeared at the main square in Mexico City, called the Plaza Mayor, which, prior to Spanish occupation, had been the main ceremonial center for the Aztec city of Tenochtitlan. At least it was before the Spanish conquistador Cortes attacked the Valley of the Sun and killed or enslaved an entire civilization. Upon arriving in the crowded square, Perez was quickly spotted by Mexican soldiers whose uniforms were different than his. They challenged him for his name and details of where he had come from. He explained that he was standing guard at the governor's palace in Manila when he suddenly felt faint and leaned against a wall for support, closing his eyes. The next thing he knew, he was standing in this crowded square. He asked where he was. The Mexico City soldiers told him he was in the Plaza Mayor in Mexico City. Perez wondered if he was going insane, and the guards as well believed he was crazy. They escorted him to the jail for questioning, and it was there that he told them his story. He gave his name, age, and rank, and said he was a palace guard at the Palacio del Gubernato in Manila, in the Captaincy General of the Philippines. Just last night, he explained, news that Governor Gomez Perez Desmanes had been assassinated by Chinese pirates reached the palace, and the people in his command were shocked by the news. He and other guards were waiting for a new governor to be appointed. Soon there was no doubt among the guards, or the Mexico governor's top people, that Perez was from Manila. He divulged much information about the palace there, the country, its people, and the unit that was stationed there. In Mexico City, he was questioned by religious authorities who considered him quite sane, but questioned how he had arrived there. No ships had arrived bringing anyone from Manila, and he had just appeared in the square, and he had just appeared out of nowhere in their square. And, of course, they had not received any news from Manila that the governor had been killed. They believed that what Perez was telling them was a fabrication, because, according to Perez, it had only happened yesterday. And back then, the only way news could travel 8,000 miles was by ship, and that would take at least two months. One would think they might have let him go. He had no weapons. He was not going to foment a revolution. But the powers that held sway in Mexico City were not going to be convinced that Perez had been suddenly and magically transported here. They suspected foul play. Maybe Perez was a spy. So they placed him in jail. His crime? Deserting his post and the monks accused him of being a servant of the devil. Perez could only wait and pray. 
Two months later, a ship arrived in Mexico City with news that Governor Desmanes had indeed been murdered. Better yet, one of the passengers recognized Perez and said that they had seen him in Manila the day after news of the governor's death had arrived. The governor of Mexico City allowed Perez to sail back to Manila on that ship with his condolences. The story became a folk legend in Mexico City and was revived in 1908 by Thomas Alabone Javier, an American folklorist living in Mexico. He submitted a story called The Legend of the Living Specter to Harper's Magazine in December of that year, naming the soldier Gil Perez. The story was one of a series called Legends of the City of Mexico, which ended up being published in book form in 1910. Javier noted that similar legends exist, one being the legend of Governor Manco and the Soldier, written by Washington Irving in Tales of the Alhambra, one story of which we narrated in 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales some time ago. Where did Javier get his story? Javier's 1908 account was based on a Spanish version by Mexican folklorist Luis González Obregón, published in his 1900 collection, Mexico Viejo, Noticias Históricas, Tradiciones, Leyendas y Costumbres, under the title Un Aparecido. Obregón traces the story to a 1698 account by Fray Gaspar de San Agustín, of the Spanish conquest of the Philippines, which recounts the story as fact. San Agustín does not name the soldier and ascribed his transportation to witchcraft. Javier says Obregón asserts that in 1609, Antonio de Morga had written that Perez de Manina's death was known in Mexico the same day, though the de Morga expresses ignorance of how this came to be. José Rizal notes many other miraculous stories from the Spanish Philippines of the time. Luis Weckman makes the same point in relation to Spanish Mexico. A 1936 collection, Historias de Vivos y Muertos, Stories of the Living and the Dead, by Obregón's successor, Artemio de Valle Arispe, included a version of the story entitled, He Came by Air, He Left by Sea. Several writers have offered paranormal explanations for the story. The most commonly accepted theory is teleportation. Actually, just five years ago, in 2017, scientists successfully teleported a tiny particle called a photon from Earth to a satellite 300 miles away in space, proving teleportation is possible. We'll get to that story right after these sponsor messages, as well as other stories of teleporters and time travelers that display similarities to the story of Gil Perez. And now, back to the legend of Gil Perez, the possibility of teleportation, and a few interesting stories about poor souls who ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time. Gil Perez wasn't the only one to land quite unexpectedly on foreign shores. For starters, there were the men from Laxaria and Tuared, the men who came from the men who came from nowhere. More on that as well. But let's start with proof that teleportation, or at least an experimental form of it, using quantum theory, is possible. Teleportation is defined as the hypothetical transfer of matter or energy from one point to another, without traversing the physical space between them. Someone who can read minds is described as telepathic, and the word telepathic fits that description perfectly. Only in the case of telepathy, it's mental energy that's transferred. Teleportation is often paired with time travel, the difference being that time travel, in theory, can transport you from one time to another, and teleportation happens on the instant. 
Theories and stories on both abound. For you history trivia nerds among us, and I know you're out there, American writer Thomas Fort was the first to coin the word teleportation, and that was in 1931. He was describing the strange appearances and disappearances of anomalies, which he suggested may be connected. Those anomalies are otherwise called very unusual occurrences that defy explanation, including frogs, fishes, and inorganic materials falling from the sky, all documented. Spontaneous human combustion, also documented. Ball lightning, unaccountable noises and explosions, levitation, UFOs, alien abductions, and out-of-place artifacts, to name a few. It's the kind of stuff that keeps skeptics in business. Here is what has been done so far with regard to teleportation. And no, they haven't yet been able to transport a mother-in-law back to her home or a solid object through space. The name quantum teleportation brings to mind a technology out of Star Trek where transporters can beam macro-scale objects, even living humans, between far-distant points in space. It's a big deal to them. They say they can separate two electrons and each, when sent to different locations in a flash of light, will provide a blueprint of the other's actions and matter. So they say teleportation is possible. Beam up that cubit, Scotty. Now to the story of the men from Lexaria and Tuared. In 1954, a man arrived at Haneda Airport in Tokyo, Japan, and when passport control asked where he was from, he said, Tuared. The airport employees, who are familiar with just about every corner of the world, were flummoxed. I can't believe I just used that word. I do enjoy this part of my work. The man from Tuarid spoke fluent Japanese and French. As far as they knew, no such country existed. It wouldn't have mattered had they access to Internet then. It still didn't exist. So the traveler pulled out his passport, and it was clearly marked Tuarid. In English, T-U-A-R-E-D. It even had airport stamps in it showing that he had traveled to Japan before. He believed the Tuarid was between France and Spain, and had existed for a thousand years. Sort of like Harry Potter's Platform 9 and 3 quarters at King Cross Station. Harry used it, but no one else could see it. It was just a brick wall to everyone else. The staff borrowed the man's passport and kindly put him up in a room overnight while they investigated. But in the morning, the man had vanished. And so had his passport. Very strange. In Liebes, Germany, in 1851, a strange man was found in the streets and taken to the mayor. In poor German, he explained that his name was Jofar Voren and that he was from Laxaria, located in the continent of Sacria, far away across the sea. Neither Laxaria or Sacria are real places. So what was going on? Here are the details and the theories for both of these strange occurrences. As you recall, when baffled officials asked the man from Tuarid to show them his country on the map, he pointed to a spot between France and Spain. That spot is actually Andorra, a small country located between those two countries. The man was angry that it was marked Andorra, however, and insisted that it be called Tuarid. The man from Laxaria claimed he had been in a shipwreck during his journey. When he was shown a globe, he was unable to point out his homeland, or the route that had brought him to Germany or why he could even speak a limited German dialect, which is what he was doing. He was asked to name the other continents of the world, which he gladly did. He answered, Aflar, Astar, Oslar, 
and Euplar. I'll repeat them, and then ask if they sound at all familiar to you. Aflar, Astar, Oslar, and Euplar. That's right. Aflar, Africa, Astar, Asia, Oslar, Australia, and Euplar, Europe. The man disappeared the next day. And so there were theories. One is that these men had traveled through time, from a future when these countries and continents had different names. Or perhaps they had come from different universes. The multiverse is a theory from physics which suggests that there could be countless universes, all of them different from each other, but in some ways similar to our Earth. These parallel universes exist side by side, according to theory, and the theory is that somehow, some way, these men were able to pop into ours and soon popped back out, maybe through a wormhole. The same explanation has been preferred to account for the appearance and disappearance of Bigfoot and other creatures, and maybe UFOs as well. Now maybe these guys were just crazies or hoaxers. That's what skeptics would like to believe. But a lot of people, planes, and even ships have disappeared. Maybe they encountered a wormhole or a vortex that just pulled them in. I'll admit, I've been watching Skinwalker Ranch on the History Channel, and what they're turning up every week for these episodes is pretty unusual. In this case, it all seems to be leading to some kind of magnetic force field located above or below certain locations on that New Mexico ranch where strange sightings have been recorded for years. Japan has its own legend of the Itsurobune, or hollow boat, which is a story that comes from Hitachi, Japan, in 1803. At that time, Japan had a very closed culture and banned all outside visitors. When a red-haired, pale-skinned girl washed up on the beach at Hitachi in a dome-shaped boat featuring metal hull and a roof with clear windows, the locals were understandably amazed. This was 1803. Actually, it didn't wash up, but it appeared to be floundering just within reach of the shore, and a couple of fishermen spotted it and towed it to shore. Inside the craft they could see food and water, as well as unfamiliar writing on the walls. To their amazement, they realized there was a woman inside. She had light-colored skin, red hair with white ends, and clothes made from an unknown fabric. She spoke to the men and did not appear afraid, but they could not understand her language. According to legend, the locals, unsure of what to do, and believing that any stranger should not be welcomed, pushed her boat back out, and what became of her, no one knows. There were drawings made of the boat and the girl. The windows were fixed into their frames with a soap-like substance, it was written. Three different witnesses wrote about the incident, and their accounts all matched, each providing different details. One interesting detail... The woman held on to a wooden box, which she would not let out of her sight, and she wouldn't let anyone near it. The Utsuro Bune story has never been explained. And here's an interesting legend concerning a Spanish convent-bound abbess, who apparently teleported herself to the New World to Christianize the Indians. The Venerable Mary Jesus of Agreda was a Franciscan abbess and spiritual writer who was known especially for her extensive correspondence with King Philip IV of Spain and reports of her bilocation between Spain and its colonies in New Spain, which is now known as New Mexico and Texas. Although she was never known to have left her Spanish convent, it has been officially determined that, between 1620 and 1631, she made over 500 trips to convert the Humano Indians of New Mexico as members of the Roman Catholic Church. 
Initially, the Catholic Church treated Mary Jesus of Agreda as delusional and heavily discredited claims of her teleportation. However, the missionaries in the New World and the Indians themselves supported these fantastical claims. For example, in 1622, a New World missionary named Father Alonso de Benavides wrote a letter to Pope Urban VIII and Philip IV of Spain that someone was already actively converting the Humano Indians long before he had arrived in the area. When the Indians were asked where they had learned about Christianity, they claimed that it was shown to them by a European lady in blue, and that this mysterious woman had provided them with crucifixes and a chalice that seemed to have come from the convent of Mary Jesus at Agreda. Between 1620 and 1623, Mary of Jesus reported that she was often, quote, transported by the aid of the angels, end quote, to settlements of a people called Humanos. The Humano Indians of New Spain had long been requesting missionaries, possibly hoping for protection from the Apaches. Eventually, a mission led by the Franciscan friar Juan de Salas visited them in 1629. The abbess reported further but less frequent visits afterwards, all the while physically remaining in the monastery at Agreda. They thus are considered bilocations, an event where a person is, or seems to be, in two places at the same time. Before sending the friars, Father Alonso de Benavides, custodian of New Mexico, asked the natives why they were so eager to be baptized. They said they had been visited by a lady in blue who had told them to ask the fathers for help, pointing to a painting of a nun in a blue habit and saying she was dressed like that, but she was a beautiful young girl. The Humanos visiting Ileta indicated that the lady in blue had visited them in the area now known as the Salinas National Monument, south of modern-day Mountaineer, New Mexico, about 65 miles south of Albuquerque. At the same time, Fray Esteban de Perea brought Benavides an inquiry from Sor Maria's confessor in Spain, asking whether there was any evidence she had visited the Humanos. As reports of Mary's mystical excursions to the New World proliferated, the Inquisition took notice, although she was not proceeded against with severity, perhaps because of her long-written relationship with the Spanish king. Accounts of Mary's mystical apparitions in the American Southwest, as well as inspiring passages in Mystical City of God, her book, so stirred 17th and 18th century missionaries that they credited her in their own life's work, making her an integral part of the colonial history of the United States. Her story is a fascinating story. Less than ten years after her death, Mary of Jesus was declared venerable by Pope Clement X in honor of her heroic life of virtue. Although the process of beatification was opened in 1673, it has not as yet been completed. Various misinterpretations of Mary's writings led to the mystical city of God being placed on the church's Index Librorum Prohibitorum in August of 1681 due to a faulty French translation published in 1678. The placement on the list of forbidden books proved temporary, however. When Mary of Jesus' casket was opened in 1909, a cursory scientific examination was performed on the 17th-century Abessa's body. In 1989, a Spanish physician named Andreas Medina participated in another examination of the remains and told investigative journalist Javier Sierra in 1991, quote, What most surprised me about that case is that when we compared the state of the body, as it was described in the medical report from 1909, with how it appeared in 1989, 
we realized it had absolutely not deteriorated at all in the last 80 years. Investigators took photographs and other evidence before resealing her casket, which remains on display in the monastery church. Some considered that incorruptibility, that is, lack of normal rot and decay after death, further evidence of sanctity. The abbess is considered venerable. In 2002, after the 400th anniversary of her birth, several groups, including the Spanish Mariology Society, the Society of Our Lady of the Most Holy Trinity, the Knights of Columbus, the American Council for the Mystical City of God, and the Working Group for the Beatification of Sister Maria de Jesus de Agreda, renewed attempts to move her beatification process forward. San Angelo, Texas, credits the abbess as a pioneering force behind the establishment of early Texas missions. Humano? They don't care if some people say she was never there, because she had left her legend behind with the Indians. Humano Native Americans reminisce about her role in their survival and her possible connection to the legend of Texas's state flower, the Blue Bonnet. She is featured in a work of fiction, The Lady in Blue, La Dama Azul, by Javier Sierra, as well as in the English biography, Maria of Agreda, Mystical Lady in Blue. Like I said, she's an interesting story. Then there's the story of Carlos Mirabelli. Carlos Mirabelli was a Brazilian physical medium and spiritualist from Sao Paulo, Brazil. He was quite well known for his ability to perform various seemingly supernatural feats, such as levitation and telekinesis, but the most impressive ability he possessed was arguably his spontaneous teleportation. In 1926, Mirabelli was about to board a train traveling from Sao Paulo to the port of Santos with some friends when one of his companions saw Mirabelli walk towards the platform, and vanish into thin air. In the middle of the day, and in front of dozens of witnesses, he faded in a foggy haze as if he were slowly getting erased from existence. Mirabelli's friends were surprised at his sudden spontaneous vanishing, but things got even stranger when a station master approached them 15 minutes later, telling them that they had a call from Mirabelli himself. When his friends spoke to him on the phone, he claimed that he was suddenly in the town of Seo Vincente, which was 56 miles away from the train's destination. He also claimed that he practically instantaneously transported there, having realized, after his supposed materialization, that only two minutes had passed from when he disappeared at the train station in Sao Paulo. The case of Brazilian medium Carlos Mirabelli is one of the most tantalizing and frustrating in psychical research. If his phenomena, especially his psychokinetic manifestations, occurred as reported, he was probably the greatest physical medium of all time. Mirabelli reportedly moved objects, including very large objects, without contact, levitated himself while bound to a chair, and dematerialized and transported objects of all kinds, including himself, to distant locations. Mirabelli also reportedly produced numerous different full-figure materializations in bright daylight, and these were often recognized as deceased relatives, acquaintances, or well-known public figures by those attending the seance. Sitters would watch them form. Attending physicians would carefully examine them for up to 30 minutes and report ordinary bodily functions. Photographs of the figures would be taken, and then they would slowly dissolve or fade before everyone's eyes. However, Mirabelli was also clearly guilty of fraud on occasion, including his notorious use of a doctored photo ostensibly showing him to be levitating. 
His case, therefore, presents an all-too-familiar challenge to psi research, namely, how to assess cases of so-called mixed mediumship. Then there's the sudden disappearance of the Vidals, a well-known and controversial case of human teleportation supposedly took place in 1968 when a Dr. Geraldo Vidal and his wife, Rafo de Vidal, allegedly teleported a large distance along with their entire car. In May of 1968, the couple was reportedly driving their vehicle along a remote rural road in Chascomas, a province of Buenos Aires in Argentina, when they were suddenly enveloped by a thick fog. The Vidals allegedly failed to make it to their destination on time, and family members and authorities went on to search for the couple in the road they had taken, but no trace of them was found. Forty-eight hours later, Geraldo Vidal called the family to inform them that he and his wife were safe, but for some reason unknown to them, they were in Mexico City, which was 6,400 kilometers away from where they were driving in Argentina. Geraldo Vidal would later claim that they had no recollection of what occurred in the last 48 hours, that they had disappeared without a trace. All they knew was that they had encountered a strange, heavy fog before everything turned black. When they came to, they found themselves parked along an unfamiliar road and felt pain in their necks. When they alighted from the car, the vehicle looked like it had been burned, as if it was badly damaged by a blowtorch. This story is not only a case of real-life teleportation, but also one of the most talked-about cases within the realm of ufology and Fortiana. And this one's interesting. The story is called The Doorways or Vortices, discovered by Al Kasig. Some cases of teleportation involve passing through doors or portals that transport people through space, and possibly even time. And one such case is the claims made by Al Kasig about his alleged discovery of doorways to distant places. In 1971, Al-Kasig claimed that he had uncovered several doorways or vortices in the states of Missouri and Arkansas, which supposedly allowed for instantaneous teleportation from one place to another by traveling through other dimensions. According to Kasig, each door is different. One could walk through these doorways and instantaneously find themselves several miles away from where they had entered. There are also vortices that take people back to the past or into the future. There are even doorways that supposedly lead to distant stars. What can we make of these alleged cases of real-life teleportation? Can these stories be easily dismissed as mere hallucinations or flights of fancy? Or is there something bigger at work in these cases that are currently beyond our limited reason and understanding? If there is a chance that we can slip through the crack of reality and shift through space to instantaneously travel from one place to another, how would that be done? These questions will perhaps forever remain unanswered, and the reality of real-life teleportation of a human being may continue to remain on the outer fringes of the scientific horizon. Nevertheless, these stories and accounts still leave us much to speculate about and think on, and the answer to unlocking the secrets of teleportation may someday be revealed to us, given that modern science is currently in pursuit of understanding the real concepts and theories that might make teleportation a reality. The following incident is commonly known as the Fence Case. Rudolf Fence is the focal character of I'm Scared, a 1951 science fiction short story by Jack Finney, which was later reported as an urban legend, as if the events had truly happened. The story tells of a 19th century-looking young man possessing items of that period 
who was found confused in the middle of Times Square in the 1950s before being hit by a car and killed, suggesting that he had, perhaps involuntarily, time-traveled about a century forward. The story of Rudolph Fence became one of the more significant urban legends of the 1980s and has been repeated occasionally since. With the spread of the Internet in the 1990s, it has been reported more often as a reproduction of facts and presented as evidence for the existence of time travel. The Fence legend describes how one evening in mid-June 1951, at about 11.15 p.m., passerbys at New York City's Times Square noticed a man of about 29 years of age dressed in the fashion of the late 19th century. No one observed how he had arrived there, and he was disoriented and confused standing in the middle of an intersection. He was hit by a taxi and fatally injured before people were able to intervene. The officials at the morgue, according to the story, searched his body and found the following items in his pockets. A copper token for a beer worth five cents, bearing the name of a saloon, which was unknown even to older residents of the area. A bill for the care of a horse and the washing of a carriage, drawn by a livery stable on Lexington Avenue that was not listed in any address book. About $70 in old banknotes. Business cards with the name Rudolph Fence and an address on Fifth Avenue. A letter sent to this address in June of 1876 from Philadelphia. And a medal for coming in third in a three-legged race. None of these objects showed any signs of aging. Captain Hubert V. Rhyme of the Missing Persons Department of NYPD tried using this information to identify the man. He found that the address on Fifth Avenue was part of a business. Its current owner did not know Rudolph Fenz. Fenz's name was not listed in the address book, his fingerprints were not recorded anywhere, and no one had reported him missing. Rhyme continued the investigation and finally found a Rudolph Fenz Jr. in a telephone book from 1939. Rhyme spoke to the residents of the apartment building at the listed address who remembered Fence and described him as a man of about 60 years old who had worked nearby. After his retirement, he had moved to an unknown location in 1940. Contacting the bank, Rhyme was told that Fence died five years before, but his widow was still alive, living in Florida. Rhyme contacted her and learned that her husband's father, Rudolph Fence, had disappeared in 1876 age 29. He had left the house for an evening walk and never returned. All efforts to locate him were in vain, and no trace remained. Captain Rhyme checked the missing persons files on Rudolph Fens in 1876. The description of his appearance, age, and clothing corresponded precisely to the appearance of the unidentified dead man from Times Square. The case was still marked unsolved. Fearing that he would be held mentally incompetent, Rhyme never noted the results of his investigation in the official files. Since 1972, the unexplained disappearance and reappearance of Rudolph Fenz has been mentioned in books, such as those by Victor Farkas, and articles, and later on the Internet, portrayed as a real event. The story has been cited as evidence for various theories and assumptions about the topic of time travel. In 2000, after the Spanish magazine Mas Allah published a representation of the events as a factual report. Folklore researcher Chris Aubeck investigated the description to check its veracity. His research led to the conclusion that the people and events of the story were totally fictional. Aubeck found that the Fens story appeared for the first time in the 72 May-June issue of the Journal of Borderland Research, which published it as a factual report. The magazine was published by the Borderland Sciences Research Foundation, 
a society that addressed UFO sightings with esoteric explanations. The magazine sourced the story to the book published in 1953, A Voice from the Gallery, by Ralph M. Holland. Aubeck believed the origin of the fictional story had been found. So there it was. A 1953 book titled A Voice from the Gallery by the very creative Ralph M. Holland. But in August of 2001, after Aubeck had published his research in the Akron Beacon Journal, Pastor George Murphy contacted him to explain that the original source was older still. Ralph M. Holland had taken the story about Rudolf Fenz completely from either a 1952 Robert Heinlein science fiction anthology entitled Tomorrow the Stars, or a short story printed in Collier's magazine. The true author ended up to be the renowned science fiction writer Jack Finney, whose life spanned between 1911 and 1995, and the Fence episode was part of the short story I'm Scared, which was first published in Collier's magazine on the 15th of September, 1951. The story describes a character called Rudolph Fenz behaving as described in the urban legend, with the narrator, Captain Hubert B. Rhyme, giving his opinions of the case. I chose this last story, the Rudolph Fenz case, to let you skeptics know that most of the stories, if not all of them, probably have legitimate explanations that don't deal with the supernatural. In the Fenz case, it's all based on a fictional book. And we're all skeptics to some degree. However, I like to leave some space open for the unexplained because I think we need legends and tales in our lives to remind us that not everything can be explained by science. Without wonder and imagination, life can be pretty cut and dry. I was looking at t-shirts online the other day and spotted one that had to have been created by an eternally optimistic fan of the Paranormal Club. It showed a caricature of Bigfoot, and it reads, Winner, World Champion, Hide-and-Seek Contest. Now that's a good one. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We have a few reason reviews for you, starting with this one. Trying to find the book. Five stars. And this particular review refers to the recent story we did called The Last of the 357th. It refers to a book by Mark Hager called The Last of the 357th Infantry, Harold Frank's World War II story, A Faith and Courage. Five stars. Great story for the 4th of July. I'm trying to find the book the story's about. Truly hate to see all our old vets leaving us. My father's generation who sacrificed so much for ours and the world's freedom. That one from Wolfie Wolf, Apple Podcast, U.S. And Wolfie, again, the author is Mark Hager, H-A-G-E-R. The book is The Last of the 357th Infantry. Harold Frank's World War II story of faith and courage. And that's published by Regnery, R-E-G-N-E-R-Y, History, Regnery History. Thank you so much for your review. Appreciate it. And this one, entertaining, educational, and amazing human drama, five stars. Can't get enough of this show. Thank you for the ongoing treasure trove of human history. Please do a narration of the May 1972 Sunshine Mine disaster, where 91 miners died and two were rescued after surviving two weeks, 1,600 meters underground in Idaho. The book The Deep Dark details the harrowing human drama. Thank you. Art Almquist DeBerry, Florida. That one from Art, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you for that referral, Ark, and I ordered the book. So we'll see if a show springs from that. Thank you for that review and that book referral. And this one, five stars. Love listening to this show. It's one of my favorites. I'm still giving it a five-star review because it's been my favorite for years. But, but, 
But that Lost Colony episode with the hammer tapping sound drove me crazy, like someone scratching a chalkboard with their nails. It was so irritating to me, I couldn't listen to the story. Down from I'm a Morning Girl, Apple Podcast Canada. And all I can tell you is you're going to have to get past it because that story is great. Parts 1 and 2, and you're going to love it. So just use that little 15-second push button there below the podcast and jump past that little tapping sound, which, by the way, I replayed on three different devices, which, by the way, I'll share this with you. I experimented with a number of devices trying to get that right sound that could sound like someone chiseling on stone. And actually, I used a glass ashtray in my office to create that sound, and I thought it sounded pretty close. I'm sorry I'm sorry it got to you, but please see if you can get past it, because I think you'll enjoy that episode a lot. Thank you very much for sending these reviews. We, we appreciate them very much, and it helps new listeners find our show. Until next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, this is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast, and we'll be back soon.